Hi, folks, and welcome to the next edition of Infection Control Matters, the up-and-coming, interesting, fascinating podcast about infection control issues. We're touching on some really interesting topics this morning with two guest speakers, and to bring them into the scene, I will throw over to Brett Mitchell. Thanks, Phil, and thanks, everyone, for joining today. So today we do have two wonderful guests, as we usually do. First is Professor Maria Northcote, and Professor Northcote is based at Avondale University College, and she's a director of high degree research uh, there. And I've worked with, had the pleasure with working with Maria on many projects. Maria's background is that of, uh, of an educator. She teaches in undergraduate and postgraduate education and research methods, and has also worked and does some qualitative research, which we'll hear about later in infection control. And equally pleased that uh, Dr. Cassie Currier joins us today. Cassie is a postdoctoral research fellow that's currently working for me, and unfortunately not much longer. Um, but um, Cassie has been working with me in a range of different projects. We'll also hear about one of those today. Cassie's background is sociology. So we're going to hear both from Cassie and Maria about what types of interesting things and perspectives can both qualitative research and sociology bring to uh, infection control. So welcome, Maria, and welcome, Cassie. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. So, um, Phil, do you want to kick off to start with? Oh, thanks, Brett. Um, Cassie, I'll, I'll ask you the first question. When I, when I see the word sociology, I tend to hark back to my primary school days, and all I can think of is a big textbook, and it was called Social Studies. But I'm, So I'm thinking sociology is a very, very big area, a big topic. But can you just tell us about sociology and what it is? Okay, so sociology is the study of human societies, the social causes and consequences of human behaviour, how societies and different groups might be structured and how they interact with one another, and also social and historical changes over time. And you're right, Phil, sociologists work across a very diverse theoretical and research fields. And the theory is, in some cases, very, very dense. But a key foundational concept is what C. Wright Mills called the sociological imagination. And we can think of that as four intersecting analytical lenses or perspectives. And these are historical, cultural, structural and critical that we can use to examine different social phenomena, question taken for granted norms and behaviours, or, for example, understand those connections between health and our social and built environments. That's a, a massive topic, and I, I, I'm, I'm been so pleased to be able to work with you over the last sort of 12 months or so mm -hmm. and, and really try and think about how we could use that perspective in infection control. And Cassie, you you um, wanted us to to highlight one article um, that sort of brings some of those perhaps concepts to real life. The article is called "Pathways, Practices, and Architectures: Containing Antimicrobial Resistance in the Cystic Fibrosis Clinic." And we will post as usual details of that article on the podcast. The lead author was Nick Brown. So, why did you choose this article um, for for sort of a description of how sociology could be used in infection control? Well, I think it was a really good example of the sociological article in that it does look at those historical factors, 
It looks at things around cultural practices in terms of care and relationships between patients and the people who are caring for them. It also looks at those structural influences. So these might be the way that different infection control policies interact with how the clinicians can provide care. Or it might be that built layout, the architectural structures um, that we're talking about here. And, of course, it's very critical in that it takes things that maybe we don't really think about so much and it just opens up for inspection how these different lenses interact and what's actually going on within that cystic fibrosis clinic. So it was a UK study where they explored how antimicrobial resistance is being managed and they looked at three different cystic fibrosis clinics. They combine qualitative and creative methods, including walking interviews, ethnography. They actually analysed some architectural plans and the segregation policies regarding patients. And they wanted to explore the implications of that architectural layout of the clinic and hospital design for antimicrobial resistance and also how physical interactions and patient pathways were configured or to use the phrase that they used was choreographed. So thinking about it as a way of choreographing or performing within these spaces. And of course, for people with cystic fibrosis, antimicrobial resistance is a huge problem. It's really magnified because their illness is characterised by frequent respiratory infections, antibiotic treatment, and, of course, they get long-term colonisation of bacteria within their lungs. So as Brown states, essentially, if people with cystic fibrosis meet, they can kill each other. And this is something that, for me, uh, really struck me on a quite deep level. So we can think about the cystic fibrosis clinic as both a place of healing and hygiene or sterility versus a place of infection where the sharing of air through breath results in cross-infection and the evolution of increasing antimicrobial resistance. So in their work, they described how ritual practices of containment, segregation and spatio-temporal isolation, so where we're locating patients in time and space, and different pathogens have evolved over time in response to AMR. So in that cystic fibrosis clinic historically, they used to encourage all the patients to congregate and spend time together and even send them off on holiday camps. But with that rising antimicrobial resistance, the focus has now changed to the role of the built environment, so that architecture and on spatial segregation in trying to prevent those infection risks that are carried on the air. And Steph Dancer in a previous podcast talked about viruses becoming aerolized. So this is what we're thinking about here. So we've also seen that as antibiotics have come into play over time, clinical spaces have also shrunk so that the space, the way that the hospital is designed, becomes especially important. And that sharing of air in clinical spaces, such as the waiting rooms and the hallways, have to be strictly negotiated. With any movement of the patients, the visitors, 
support workers, clinicians, they're all carefully choreographed to minimise that risk of airborne transmission and reduce AMR. So, for example, in their study, they found that clinical appointments would be scheduled at different times, different days in different spaces, but also according to the bugs that different patients carried. And it was all designed to stop these bacterial strains coming into contact with one another. But the potential for infection still remains. They might have late and early arrivals bumping into one another, or they might be working in an outpatient's clinic where they can't hold the rooms for very long. So they can't just say, well, that's the room we're going to use for our patients today because someone else might grab the room or they're escorting patients back and forth. And there might also be instances where you've got the cystic fibrosis patients having to use the same entrance and exit points. Thanks, Casey. That's a really interesting study. And it actually um, was reminded me of the days when I did work in in, um, in the wards and we had a large population of CF patients. And it was a real issue because resistant organisms were being found on some patients and in the hospital environment we had to physically isolate and separate but we knew that more than likely they were socializing um, as they normally did when they were out of hospital but it also then you know led to issues about them going away on their camps together and and the various groups of social people friends that they socialized with so it actually was a real real issue and how the the hospital environment um, tried to, well, the challenges of working with that in the existing hospital environment um, were also important too. Mm. Um, so thanks. For, that's, that's a really good paper, Brett. Yeah. And, and look, there were some interesting tensions there between, I guess, the need to segregate and the, the uh, I guess, emotional and, and um, well-being needs of people wanting to also be together and socialise. So um, that's another tension we're facing constantly now, infection control and aged care with COVID, uh, other, other aspects of COVID restrictions as well. Um, and that kind of leads nicely on to, um, to, to you, Maria, because uh, Cassie touched on a couple of things there in terms of qualitative research um, and different approaches. So do you just want to give us a quick sort of overview of, of what do we mean by qualitative research uh, and what... What have you been involved with in infection control and qualitative research? Yeah, thanks, Brett. Um, I just wanted to mention that with Cassie's comments about the, you know, the social side of things and the historical side of things in sociology, that often comes into qualitative research as well. So I can really see the overlap there mm. between the two fields of, of or the two disciplines, I suppose. Mm. Um, yeah, with qualitative research, you can design a whole study around the qualitative paradigm or the mindset of qualitative research, or you can use qualitative methods. So if you were using a a totally qualitative approach, that's definitely a very exploratory way to go with research. So you don't necessarily have a hypothesis even. You're going into a situation, a natural setting, like the actual context rather than being away from it, and you're really looking for the insider's point of view. And it's typically done in a way that is open-ended. So when you go in, your research question is very open. So you're not thinking, well, this is probably going to happen. It's more of a a situation where you're really looking to see what on earth is going on here and you're very willing and ready to dig deep. So that's why sometimes in qualitative research, the sample size is not as big as 
a quantitative study. And the reason for that is we want to find out the multiple perspectives of people and we don't want just quick answers to questions, which in quantitative research are really useful because you can survey lots and lots of people. But with qualitative research, we tend to go in deep. So if you use a um, a qualitative method in, say, a mixed methods research, like you and I have done, Brett and Phil, Mm. many times, um, I think it really supplements the quantitative research that we do or the quantitative data that we collect. So in qualitative research, we're basically collecting data that's non-numeric, so not numbers, in other words, not stats. Um, And that type of data is typically textual, so text data. It could be an interview transcript. It could be um, someone making observations and recording them in words. Uh, could be an open-ended questionnaire with um, where the participants or the responders of the of the questionnaire are, are responding in text text responses. It could even be collecting graphics. So might maybe taking photos in the ward, for example, of certain situations. It could be collecting video or even audio. So I think with qualitative research, I suppose the the main thing is your mindset is it's very exploratory and you're looking for multiple perspectives of the person. You're looking for the insider's point of view and you're collecting data that's that's not numeric. So you're trying to find really detailed information, typically about a complex phenomenon. That's a great explanation. And um, I also liked your explanation about sample size because that's often something that comes up um, with reviewers about um, when you or, or when you're reading a piece of research, people might say, oh, "I only had ten people that you you interviewed," but uh, I did like your explanation on that. We might have to go back and record that for a um, for a response in the, in the future peer reviewers. <laughs> topic of contention, that's for sure. <laughs> that's right. Mm. <laughs> um, and in terms of the other question you asked, Brett, about where have I been involved with mm. infection control research? Um, there are a couple of examples. One of, um, but I think in general, the the thing that helps um, in terms of infection control research, in terms of using qualitative research, it helps us to find out the patient's views, for example. And in patient-centred care, healthcare, I think that's becoming more and more important, even though I'm not from that health discipline myself. Um, I, I find that in many areas of study these days, like we have student-centred learning in schools, patient-centred care in hospitals, I think in qualitative research methods really help us to find out what's going on with the patient. Because mm. I think a lot of the time we do this research around the patient and about the patient, and sometimes we don't always get the chance to find out their perspective or the perspective, for example, of the clinicians themselves Mm. um, or the doctors, the nurses, whoever is working with the patient. So it's the context, I suppose, like um, Cassie was saying earlier. We want to find out the full context, not just a microscopic um, part of it. Not that the microscopic part is not valuable. I think with qualitative research, it really supplements the the quantitative research. So if you had the chance to do qualitative research as well as quantitative, my question is why not? You know, sometimes it's an issue of cost and, you know, there's not enough funding because it is quite expensive to do sometimes. Um, so in terms of there's a, an Australian saying that we often say, what's not to love? You know, so with qualitative research, um, I'm definitely a fan of that, but I'm also a fan of quantitative research. I can see the benefit of both. So the idea of a lot of infection control, I think the, the research in this area, from what I can see, is that it's really valuable often to have a mixed methods approach. 
So you have a bit of both. And so you're not, they're not competing for each other in terms of value, but they're really supplementing each other. And it helps us to understand the impact of the infection control, um, of the infection, sorry, how to prevent it in the future and how to manage it. So I think it really gives a voice, it, give, it potentially gives a voice to the people who have the infection, you know, the ones, it gives them a chance to, to really tell us what it's like. Thanks, Marie. It's 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 uh, so much of infection prevention is about behaviour as well and human and and in communication. And so, qualitative aspect has got a real um, important value to add to in research in this area. Cassie, you were involved in a recent paper around cleaning and nurses' role in cleaning. Mm-hmm. Can you just tell us a bit about that paper? Okay, so uh, the interview study. So. It's actually part of a mixed method. So it followed on from a previous paper that we published on nurses and midwives' knowledge of infection control and cleaning. And we knew from that survey that there were ambiguities around how to clean and what products to use in particular situations. And people weren't always sure about who was responsible for cleaning particular items. And For example, with a survey, the questions are very close. So they're yes, no answers or they're numbers on a scale. And so you can't really dig down into why that might be so. So we then went on to do some interview studies, a qualitative study. And we interviewed six nurses. One had a dual midwife qualification. And they were all working in clinical settings, including hospital outpatients, emergency department, a GP practice and community nursing across various states of Australia. And we wanted to drill down into some of those findings from a survey and to know about their experiences of cleaning and infection control. So, for example, what challenges did they face in their clinical practice when trying to clean? And did they feel that their knowledge was up to date? And we found in this study that many organisations, the nurses, um, from what they were telling us, the nurse and midwife were telling us, that many organisations actually failed to meet the recommended infection control guidelines. So they talked about a historical lack of attention and management support for cleaning and infection control. It was often often treated as a tick box exercise for accreditation purposes. And time pressures um, certainly played a key role in how well cleaning was done, if at all. So one nurse spoke about how she was allocated three minutes cleaning time between patients to go in and actually clean and sanitise everything. But most of the disinfectants that she was working with needed 10 minutes application time to actually begin to work. So you can see if you've only got three minutes to clean that those products don't have time to work and and so the surface effectively may still be contaminated. Um, And they also talked about the need for infection control and hygiene practices to be really embedded into learning right across the spectrum of their nursing and midwifery career right from undergrad and all the way through that lifelong learning and to be really embedded into mandatory annual assessment Um, and also to make sure that in planning training, so often 
training workshops would be scheduled for times when casual workers weren't on site. And so as one um, person commented, you're only as strong as your weakest link. So if half your staff are actually away for the day when you're conducting the training, then there's this big gap in knowledge that happens right across the organisation. It was a a fascinating you know, exploration of different things. Mm-hmm. And um, just as a disclaimer too, for those um, listening, Phil and I were also involved in that paper, so we, we should say that up. <laughs> and, and for those interested, again, we'll put the details of that paper on the um, the podcast. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to cut you short there, Cassie, yeah. but um, at the same time, um, I think what we might suggest to listeners is that uh, they can uh, get hold of that paper and and have a bit more of a read themselves because it's um, a sort of a fascinating part and um, of really understanding um, some of the intricacies of of cleaning from a nursing uh, and midwifery um, perspective that mm-hmm. weren't covered. And Maria, you've got another example um, similar to that. Again, another disclaimer that we were involved in this study, but um, where where you undertook some focus groups of of nurses. Do you want to um, talk to us about that? Um, this was a project that we conducted a few years ago and I was involved as a qualitative researcher with you and Phil and and some others and we were looking at reducing infection in hospitals of patients contracting infections from catheters. So we worked with a company to develop a device that was a reminder device that was actually attached to the catheter bag and the the reason that um, we did this is to try and help nurses to remember just to reassess whether the catheter needed to stay in or come out and it wasn't saying to them you're not doing this properly but it was just helping it was a helpful device to say look perhaps you should reassess this in the busy day you know the busy schedule that that nurses have so the idea of this was um, there was an intervention to to attempt to reduce um, infections that were contracted through having a catheter so um the device itself was called a cath tag and it was an electronic device that was attached to the actual catheter bag. So there was a flashing light to indicate to, to nurses when it was or the clinician that was dealing with the patient to reassess the need um, for re- re- um, having the catheter remain or removing it. So we collected data um, about around, around the use of this cath tag, uh, this device, and we also in- interviewed a whole bunch of nurses and clinicians about how they use the cath tag. And it was very revealing because we did also collect data from the nurses with an online survey. But the the focus group was quite revealing because a lot of issues came through on the focus group and um, some swearing as well, Brett, you may remember. I won't I won't reproduce that here. But, um, you know, some it was quite in some places, some parts of the focus group was quite emotional. And so that was something that we didn't get through the other data that we collected. So if we had only collected quantitative data, we wouldn't have known why the cath tag worked or it didn't work. And it was very interesting in the focus group, we asked the nurses about their experience of using the cath tag 
And some nurses hadn't been as involved as we would have hoped in the training of how to use the cath tag. So that came out very clearly. And so in terms of research-informed practice, we worked out that the training of, of nurses and clinicians was absolutely vital to the success of using these devices. And we asked the nurses and the clinicians about ease of use, um, how effective they thought it was, whether there are any changes in patient behaviour because of the, the use of the cath tag. And one of the really interesting things is we found out that we didn't know before, that once the device became soggy, once it became wet, it just fell off and didn't work. So that was a big, a big finding, if you like, for the next design of the of the of the device. Um, we also found that cost was an issue that we didn't expect. The nurses were very vocal about how asking about how much is this going to cost, because they were obviously very aware of the budgets on their ward and the the cost of. Um, of, of the device. And the other thing that we found um, from the patient's point of view, a lot of the clinicians and nurses told us that some patients were quite embarrassed about having a catheter in. So they would hide the catheter bag under a blanket. So as soon as the, the catheter bag was hidden, of course, the device was hidden as well. So then we started to think, well, where should this device actually be on the catheter, on the catheter bag or somewhere else? So there were all these um, things that we didn't expect came out in the focus group. And I think the other thing about the focus group interview is that you have a mass of people. I think we had about eight to 10 people in that group. And one person would mention something and then other people would chime in to say, that was a big issue for me as well. And the, as I said earlier about the emotional side of things, in a bit of text that you receive in a survey, that can be really useful information. But to be there and listen to these people to get their insider's view about what it was like to use the device, that was just invaluable. And I don't know how we could have received that information in any other way besides an actual interview, talking to the person. I think um, that's a great overview, Maria, and a great example, I think, of the value of a mixed methods approach. And the other thing that um, I would sort of add was that through some of those dialogues with the focus group, we identified that one particular staff group yes. um, um, really, for perhaps cultural reasons or other reasons, didn't like the concept of this device. When we took that particular subgroup out because there were um, 10 different, I think about 10 or 12 different units or departments involved in the study, we took that particular department out the results completely changed from a quantitative point of view um, uh, when, when looking at some sub-analysis. So you, know, you look at the headline result, you might go, does it work, does it not work? You take them out and you might go from a quantitative point of view, it, it could work. Yeah. So um, really fascinating that without that um, qualitative element, we wouldn't have thought to explore uh, that from a quantitative point of view as well. Such a good point. And I think it goes back to Cassie's work as well in sociology, the culture of the ward. You know, as you said, there was one particular ward that were almost anti-use of that device, um, and I think they may have felt, you know, it was something to do with um, being monitored or something. They were interpreting it, the device as something that it wasn't really meant to be. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, you're right, Brett. We wouldn't have found that out unless we had actually had that focus group interview. Mm -hmm. Well, that uh, probably is a good um, opportunity for us to to wrap this podcast up. It's um, it's actually a, a fascinating area. I'm sure we're going to be talking a lot more about um, the qualitative and sociology aspects of research in infection prevention in future podcasts. It's a, and it's a really uh, it's really enjoyable 
were actually speaking to the authors of um, of these studies uh, and manuscripts as well. So um, I would like to um, just uh, remind our listeners that all the articles that we referred to, um, there will be links um, on our website so you can access them that way. A sincere thanks to both Maria and Cassie for your time today and for your input. Um, it's great work. Please keep it up. And we look forward to, to future chats and also to you, Brett. So thank you for joining me this morning. And uh, right now, I'll say bye for now. Bye for now. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Bye.